Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. Back again in the Detroit is Different podcast studios. And you guys are used to me saying that as somebody I know, somebody I came up with, a good guest. <laughs> This lady is actually one of the most, uh, she introduced me to philosophy in elementary school. And she didn't even know that because she was always throwing different puzzles and questions that didn't even have uh, finite answers. And it's like, why am I going deep? I'm, I'm, I'm a third grader. I want to get back to playing with my Ninja Turtle. But then you, you, you playing with Donatello and Leonardo and you're sitting here thinking like, damn. Why do we say hello <laughs> and things like that? <laughs> why, why am I saying hi? <laughs> why is this a greeting? How are things happening like this? So she is one of the people that unlocked that, and many other people have unlocked it even further, 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 but definitely a pillar in that. Mama Bonisawa, how are you today? I am wonderful and grateful and very blessed, mm -hmm. Kari, on this day. Thank you so very much for inviting me to this amazing opportunity to share with you some stories. Thank about, you. About life, Detroit, Yes, about life, Detroit, science, whatever. Philosophy, as I tell <laughs> the people. The future. Yes, it will go many places. And for a lot of people that know me, like, Mama Bonisa was like, you got to get me on there. What I got to, it was like, hey, it's a, it's an open forum. Get in okay. contact with me. I know sometimes getting in contact with me may be like God knows what, but. It's open for everybody because everyone's Detroit story is beautiful. But this one I'm definitely interested in just because I know how the mind works in Mama Bonisawa. So <laughs> it's not going to be the general answer, you know. So with that being said, your Detroit story. Are you uh, first generation, second generation? Uh, when did your family get to Detroit? Well, my parents, my father and mother, were the first generation here in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Um I grew up on the northwest side, not too far from here, on Ewall Circle, Davidson, Oakman mm -hmm. Boulevard area. Okay. Um, I had an amazing childhood. I remember being able to run and play, and every neighbor had a fruit tree in their yard and a small garden. And, you know, we could go outside and eat from one house to the other, and everybody, uh, we would have backyard jazz concerts oh. and uh, my father was a social worker who worked mostly in the South part for DPS, Detroit Public Schools. And because he was a community uh, developer and activist, he often had many different cultures and people in our, in our home. And uh, I just remember having block parties and, you know, my aunt over in Glen, over here, Glen and Dexter, they would have parties and oh back in the day you could have the Detroit pool <laughs> come swim, out to the swim pool the swim mobile right yes. so I remember that but uh, I do remember in uh, when the Detroit had its riots a real impactful s story my father we we lived on Ewall, we lived on Ewall Circle and there was an alley we you had alleys then and uh, the neighbors on Oakman Boulevard, when the uh, National Guard came in, I was about 10. And 
my father and the neighbors, Mr. Douglas, Dr. Thomas, the houses, we all had back porches, and they all had rifles and weapons. And I came up, and I asked my dad, I said, Dad, why, what, what's going on? Why do you all have these weapons? Why are you all up here like this? And he pointed to Davison. At that time, we could look down the alley and see Davison and the National Guard were going down the road. And he said, I'm protecting you from them. Mm. And I was 10. I was like, okay. Eh, I didn't know. But when I look back on that, you know, how powerful that was that these black men decided that they were going to secure their community. And I felt, and that's one of the things that I think our children don't have as much is to be secure and safe in their neighborhood. I never doubted whether I was safe or secure because the men in my neighborhood made that possible. And I'll never forget that. Um, and even though, you know, my parents divorced and everything, we still, I grew up knowing that black men would secure will always secure our community. And I think that was so very, very important. Okay. So n- now goes the usual Detroit is different dig. Your <laughs> parents, whereabouts are they from? Where where, oh, where okay. your mom and dad from? What, where at? My mother's family is from Canada, actually. Where at? Barrie, Ontario. Mm. Is that near? Okay, because a lot of people don't know. It's 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 a couple of territories connected to the Underground Railroad where you have enclaves of a bunch of black folks that are just still in the Windsor, the Ontario, the, uh, what I think it's like Chatham um, yes. area. And they've been there for, for decades. Yes. Yeah, since, since the uh, Spanish American war, my sister's like our family genealogist. And we think our great, great grandfather was a part of the Spanish-American War. And hmm. because he fought for the British, we think that's how my mother's family got to Canada because they they actually took many of those soldiers that fought for them in 1812 and moved them north to hmm. Canada. So that we found that out. But Barrie, Ontario is close to Buffalo, New York. It's a, mm-hmm. right across from uh, oh, Lake okay. Erie. Back in, So okay. my family, my mother's family eventually moved to Buffalo, New York. But back then you could go across from America to Canada. It wasn't a big deal. Um, but, yeah, I, we found out that my grandmother was here illegally. Okay. Yeah. Here in America? Yes. Wow. She okay. never got her citizenship here. Okay. Mm-hmm. So from so that's very interesting. And I want to unpack a whole lot <laughs> about okay. that. That's <laughs> okay. And just for people, we, we dropped a couple of different gems so people can have a better understanding. Detroit has a rich connection to the Underground Railroad. Um, right. Now, that's a different lane as we think close to Buffalo. But that was another place where you still had a lot of blacks influence in Canada. And yes. as we're also finding out and discovering as we're aware of so many black people that were already here in what we label as the United States of America, it was a lot of tribes that we label as quote unquote natives that look, you know, yeah, that were, darker we're, than me and yes, you. Yes, absolutely. That absolutely. you would look at now and they'd be absolutely. walking down the street and you'd be like, uh, you a black guy. You know right. what I'm saying? Or you a black woman. But, and they were in Canada as well. Absolutely. You know, as you know, this is going to sound crazy, but, uh, Hockey 
Oh, black people. Was invented. Yes. No, 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 I know. And, and in Canada was the origin of it, really. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yep. We, hey, we, we've done everything, right? Exactly. So right. Uh, so with that, like I said, this is going to be a fun interview. No problem. So, so we have a Canadian connection. It's close to Buffalo. Every time I think Buffalo, I think Rick James. But that's me. <laughs> so her so, so her family uh, was in Buffalo, New York, mm. and um, my grandmother was an entrepreneur. She had a restaurant. She was a restaurateur, and my mother ended up having a restaurant also. And from Buffalo, um, wait, she, okay. I've been running into a lot of stories <laughs> about women with farms, um, businesses, mm-hmm. just doing. Things that like sometimes I think we I think history is painted from a narrative, especially in film, where definitely uh, sexism exists, racism exists, Mm -hmm. bigotry exists, discrimination exists. But, you know, the though I love the the hidden figure story, it wasn't as much of an anomaly. The more I'm finding out the same way that like Bessie Smith, like Los Angeles was founded by a black woman. Um, It was a lot of black women wielding a lot of influence in Americas, where white men, uh, black men, uh, whoever, you you were going to have to go through the, not on like a, 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 a the, for lack of a better term, not like a mammy role of her gracing you and hugging you, but like, no, nah, we're going to really chop up some real business here. Right. So let's talk a little bit about well, that being like a, a running a restaurant and it passed down generationally, uh, intergenerational. Well, part of it, I think, was, you know, after our enslavement and and many of our families moving north, and we were segregated, so we had to provide services for each other. So Mm -hmm. one of the the reasons, I'm quite sure, my grandmother uh, started the restaurant business was because it provided a service and a means of income. Mm -hmm. Uh, She also was, of course, a a housekeeper, you know, the ironing and the sewing and um, she was an excellent seamstress. Um, so I think that was out of necessity and options that we had mm-hmm. uh, because we served our own. We took care of our own in our community, and people had to eat, and people worked extraordinary long hours working in different— well, then they had the, um, uh, the, the, the shipping in Buffalo, New York, and a lot of industry was along Lake Erie. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm quite sure many of us worked really long, hard hours, and we needed somewhere to go. And and I just want to share that, and and I tip my hat because Mm -hmm. Lord knows that that's, it's hard being in business whenever, Mm -hmm. but especially back in the day, and, and it's not like black people getting loans now. But right, right. <laughs> but oh, back yeah, then, the you, you didn't even consider yeah. Yeah. A, a loan. You, you know what I'm saying? You were well, having to work in, in a different range. And even thinking of, of, of what the dynamics of that, you know, these, you know, shoremen, especially like a bunch of if, if some white shoremen or even black shoremen. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm not even going to see you again. Well, I got to right. pay for this food. It's right. like you got to have a different <laughs> <laughs> level of like, all right. All right, we're going to get you some beans and cornbread. Right. But you also going to be fair and we're going to guide you through. And then you hear and you grow mm-hmm. in that reputation. And I'm sure, just like everything, word of mouth, you know, hey, as soon as we get to town, I'm going to, I don't know the name of the restaurant. Right. <laughs> and I, I don't remember it either. But we, we also, our, our means of revenue to start businesses often came from our churches. 
through donations and also from Straight our numbers, numbers. people. Yeah. I was getting ready to say numbers and the, and the drug dealers. Yeah. I mean, they they yeah. were our banks because we didn't have where else where else were we going to go mm-hmm. uh, to get that kind of capital to be able to do stuff like that. So it's it, real. And it, and it created a more, as I'm hearing, and I know some of this, I mean, some of this I think is romanticized, but I do think it, it was a more cohesive and collective ecosystem. So even for the criminal element has to be interconnected with the faith-based element, mm-hmm. interconnected with the entrepreneurial element, mm-hmm. which obviously because you're inter- interconnected with people, it's going to be interconnected with schools and children and everything it's like hey a bunch of these kids need school need shoes for school so uh drug dealer numbers man guy that owns the funeral home lady with the with the successful restaurant all of y'all putting in on these kids shoes yes straight up yes that's how that's how we operated we had to mm-hmm. to to continue as a as a collective existence i mean it was necessary we and and our view of ourselves uh, as a collective group, uh, has those dynamics have changed. But when you live in the same neighborhood, regardless if you're the doctor or the lawyer or, like you said, the funeral director, the pastor, the minister, mm-hmm. we all lived in the same neighborhood. It didn't matter what your profession was because you couldn't live in any other neighborhood. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you figured it out and you worked together and it wasn't about better than or less than. It's just like, let's just do this. Because we have to. And it's a uh, collective, mm-hmm. as they say, uh, I don't like that adage, the whole, like, what do they say? A rising tide raises all mm-hmm. ships. Because usually when that's used, it's a trick bag. But that's a, that's <laughs> a Kari like, thought process. U- Ujima, right? <laughs> collective work and responsibility. So. In a um, real way. So my father's. Yes. Yeah, okay. Father's my family. father's family is from Georgia. Whereabouts? Um, from my maternal grandmother's family is Augusta hmm. and Palmetto, Georgia is from my paternal family. Okay, so now I gotta ask, where is Palmetto, Georgia? Palmetto, Georgia is about seventy five miles outside of Atlanta. Okay. It's not that far. It mm-hmm. was a plantation just like most of Georgia was. Yeah, except I was gonna for say Atlanta. that sounds like a but uh I am a fifth generation educator. Mm-hmm. My great-great-grandfather from Augusta, Georgia, is William Jefferson White, who was one of the founders of Morehouse College. Wow. So, yeah. Mm. So every generation in my matrilineal father's line were educators, Mm. whether either starting institutions of education or sustaining them. So I am the fifth line in that. And one of my models for establishing every child is a genius. It's is it's my turn, my time. Hmm. Um, it's being the fifth generation and every generation previous. We opened a school, so hey, it's my turn, my time. It's uh, it's it's you. You're following in the footsteps. Yeah, but I didn't want to though. See. <laughs> My mother was a special education teacher, and my father was a social worker. And I just remember I was that that kid at home checking papers of first graders. And I remember saying, oh, heck no, I'm not doing this. I'm not ever going to be a teacher. You don't get paid enough. You work. <laughs> she was working on Sundays, making up games and doing all of these things. And I was like, huh, never. But 
hey, you plan and a lot plans and Mm-hmm. God knows what path you you're supposed right. to be on. So yes. here yes. I am, 35 years later, still being an educator, right? <laughs> so, so I, I do want to unpack some of that, and I know okay. you can you can unpack that. So, the history of public education, and especially historically black colleges, um, as I know it, it's a couple things that were happening in and around the time when public education was offered to people. And I often give this debate when I offer any perspective, mm-hmm. um, any perspective about this. So so at one point in time, like most of the world, America was an agricultural society. And that's a, I guess that's the academic way of basically saying there was a bunch of farmers here. That's mm-hmm. what America did. America was a province of I guess we want to say like European outcasts that came here, if we're looking at this as a nation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they used this and they were given a loan from primarily Britain to basically, I guess, uh, cultivate the land and then send back products, send back yeah. products mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and then the North kind of served as like the the insurance banking, the financiers of like how the business mm-hmm. happens. The South was obviously more set up for fertile ground and, mm-hmm. and for farming year round. I mean, you know, that's what America starts as. So you have an agricultural nation for years. Mm-hmm. And this is where it kind of confused people. So 1776 is the start of quote unquote America. Mm-hmm. But uh, enslavement, especially of our people, was way before, way that. before that. So, yes. like when when you when people say, "Hey, our people have been here for you know s- dealing with years, this for yeah. centuries," yes, then people will say, "Well, America ain't even been around." So right. that's 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 thing number one. Now I'm going to tie this into agriculture. So agriculture in this agricultural society, obviously the greatest thinkers, the greatest. Uh, talents, skills, and all of that were our people because we were the people in the soil. We were the people doing the work. And not just in the soil, we were we were developing and engineering ways to do this more efficiently. We were uh, figuring out ways to um, to to expansionally like um, add more to seasonings, flavors, herbs, um, many things that you know people look at. Here's another one. George Washington Carver, shout out to him. George Washington Carver is an amazing scientist, but he was not as much of an anomaly as we look at it. It was a lot of George Washington Carvers Mm -hmm. going up and down the line. And this was like natural knowledge. So Mm -hmm. so black people through enslavement and our oppression and maybe kind of tied to it. We were the people with the skills, with the talents, with the information. Mm -hmm. And and you look at Reconstruction in this shift in this nation and you have the Civil War and you have a huge populace of white Americans and the budgeting and starting of this industrial industry. And it's like, how do we make them effective workers? Mm -hmm. How can they become productive how do we basically profit from them being in this machine of what we want to do and work? Because they can't farm because obviously it was too hard and they can't do that. Mm-hmm. We got to make them industrial. So they got to learn how to read. Mm-hmm. The same way we were ahead of the curve when it comes to farming and agriculture, the South 
all of the teachers, all of the schools, mm -hmm. we were ahead of the curve with that of teaching someone from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Now, are there uh, like, like, I guess I want to say like Victorian monastery prep schools for like the extremely elite uh, whites that were in the South? Yes. Mm -hmm. But it was specifically designed for like a, almost like it'd be like taking a kid that never did anything and then putting them in Cranbrook mm -hmm. in the sixth grade. It was the black teachers that knew how to cultivate a person that hasn't that doesn't even know the alphabet and get them on a learning curve. And not only that learning curve, mm -hmm. that learning curve moved fast, mm -hmm. especially under the guise of uh, some of what Booker T. Washington mm -hmm. would do, because as much as the HBCUs exist and people say, well, you know, it was a lot of the white folks that started to HBCUs. It was, still was a made more balanced relationship because. A lot of the white communities knew north and south that these black teachers are the only people that will be able to actually get these white people to a point where they can learn because they have the pacing charts. They have the lesson plans. They know how to take basically a person that's never sat in front of a book <laughs> and get them to the point where we can get them to mm -hmm. on a line of steel where they're not going to. First off, I think they were probably more concerned about the steel than the person dying. But a person walk into a steel, uh, a steel meal. industrial mm -hmm. plant meal and die. Because people were walking in the coal mines dying, steel mines dying. And they were like, these people don't know how to, we got to talk to them. They don't know how to read. They don't know mm -hmm. how to do anything. These people still are mad. They were just overseers. They were just whipping black people the other day. Like, what do they do? Who can teach them? Mm -hmm. You know who was teaching them? We were. So I wanted to give that context. So when we think of public education, it mm -hmm. has a still another strong relationship with black folks because it became a public good Behind the ideas of like Van Buren, Carnegie and all of these mm -hmm. people. So mm -hmm. they hid it behind the veil of we want to raise public good for people. But in reality, they were just trying to transition this populace of displaced workers, which really were enslavers, mm -hmm. into industrial workers. Mm -hmm. That was what public education was. And HBCUs right. played a hell of a role in this because a lot of the people that founded those HBCUs were already actively in lessons of teaching, mm -hmm. in lessons of understanding, you know, um, the, 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 almost everything on a plantation was all designed by uh, us. The design of the architecture of Washington, D.C. That's designed us. by us. The we, design, built the, we built the White House and everything that's there, right? <laughs> Wall, uh, Wall Street itself yes. in New York, designed by us. So, like, all of this building and supplying, like, we had the information. And this mm -hmm. is going back to, like, Moorish science, you yes. know. Or, or masonry, if people want to talk about it, but like hence kind of mm -hmm. time. Um, the discipline, and, and that's the why group. it's important that our student, our children, know that connection, the history, because when you look at uh, uh, a Malian Empire, or you look at um, the Dahomey, or you mm -hmm. look at in South Africa and Zimbabwe, and you look at these tremendous systems and communities, then you can connect and say, well, yeah, we. We built those. That was our natural understanding of how civilizations are supposed to look like. Yeah. Or we dressed the white woman because she didn't know how to sew. We did all those things. Did her hair. I she mean, didn't even know how to do hair. The, so the, it's, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, the, the plumbing systems that still exist in what we look at as the Mediterranean, like Greece, Spain, yeah. Portugal, That's ours. Italy. That was Moorish people coming in mm -hmm. and showing like, hey, uh, stop 
defecate, stop, uh, <laughs> stop yeah, relieving yourself in the, in the middle of yes. the street. Yes. <laughs> that yes. is going to bring uh, maggots and disease yeah, and problems. Disease. So what do we do with this? You got to have a plumbing system. Well, that's where the what Black is Plague came system? from. The Black Plague came from that, yeah. And they're saying there's a good movie called The Black Robe. We used to play it all the time, The Shoelay, and it's a it was played this time of the year, too, to give the children a perspective of how um, the... Um, Oh, what are they called? I can't think of the name of the 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 monks, the monks of the um, oh, what they're right over here off of uh, Six Mile and Livernois. What are they called? I can't think. Of it. But anyway, they were they the the native brothers were taking them in their their boat, and the priest decided to defecate on the side of the ship, and the native brothers was looking at him like, and they started laughing at him like, why would it's like why would you do that? Like, it doesn't even make sense that you would Mm -hmm. pollute the water that you're about to drink. And several of the children didn't know why they were laughing. They thought maybe they were laughing at him because he was doing a personal, and Mm -hmm. you know. But I was like, no, they're laughing at him because it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Something would be wrong with you to do that because we buried ours. We recycled ours. We didn't just put it in the water where we drink. It just doesn't, a lot of things they did don't make sense, but. So, That's why we're here. We are today, right? With yeah, I mean, with, so uh, so I know I'm giving you runway, but I do I'm want you to get you. right into. So from from that's an interesting connection. So mm-hmm. I can, somebody from Canada, somebody from Georgia, mm-hmm. as they say. How did they? How, how did they end up? How did they? So my paths? my father uh, went to uh, Morehouse. Mm-hmm. And he went to the army, and then he came back, and he graduated from West Virginia State. And my grandfather actually worked there as physical education director, and my grandmother worked there. Uh, she she ended up getting her uh, master's in social work also. She worked at West Virginia State. Um, after the war and after my father graduated, he moved to Detroit hmm. because there was allegedly more opportunity, you know, in the early 50s mm-hmm. for African Americans. Uh, Detroit was a place where you could— you know, get a decent job. He started working at the Urban League, actually. Wow. So um, my parents met at a party. That's how they met. Okay. So a friend of my mom's, and that's something that we did. We did house parties. I mean, real nice house parties and dressed up and, you know, uh, so that's how they met. They met at a party. Which is actually another example of some of the black opulence. Mm Mm-hmm that Detroit was privy to because of the industries in and around Detroit yes. when we think about like the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Because when you talk to people from outside of Detroit uh, that, you know, made paths here, black folks especially, they're like, man, people had pianos in their house and, and houses yeah, to begin just, with. Just like <laughs> that scene in, what was that, uh, uh, where the, the white guy's on the porch and he says, that nigga got a piano. I ain't, Rosewood. I ain't even got no goddamn piano. And then his friend says to him, but he's a music teacher. I don't care. The nigga got a piano, and I ain't got no, I mean, just, yeah. right. We yeah. did. We had those things, and partly it's because we didn't invest our money in other, you know, we couldn't invest our money in other things except the quality of our living because where were we going to go? I mean, what the Green Book taught us, right? We couldn't travel so far and go so many places without yeah. it being a problem. And I remember that, too, as a child. When we would visit uh, West Virginia, we never stopped. 
and we would always have food in the car. And I was like, oh, my God, can we stop at McDonald's? Can Nope, mm-hmm. nope, mm-hmm. nope. And we would drive for six to eight hours. And we mm. were just like, why do we have to keep having these chicken boxes in the car? Hey. <laughs> but Ohio. now I understood. Yeah, I mean, Ohio back in the <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Ohio, now we still see it. So right. It's, some, it's still some so, M-A-G-A flags. <laughs> Getting that 75. But like, I was oh, a child. I, I didn't know. I'm going to get this gas like, Yeah, right. No, yeah. And he would go to specific places to get gas and did not get off the major interstate highway at all. And we yeah. were like, why not? And it's like, that's something we just don't do. So they crossed paths and both of them in social work. So that's interesting that. Well, my mom was in. Uh, actually, she was a restaurateur at the time. Okay. And she eventually went back to school and became a teacher. In special education. But at the time, she was, I think she was working for the federal government for a Mm. while. Yeah. So that was something that also opened up north was federal jobs that weren't available. How did they adjust to West Virginia? Because that's also just not even on a black story. Um, Some of my truck driving years I went through. West Virginia is an interesting place if you ever happen to go and want to yeah, no, see something. The culture no. is different. It is very different. It is very different. But I think because uh, the Institute was where West Virginia was a black college environment, mm-hmm. and so it was a black community um, that they really, they were really unified. I mean, um, my Uncle Andy had the, 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 restaurant across the street from the school and all the young people would go over there and get their fried bologna sandwiches and you know that was just a black community okay inside already like a you know it's a couple states i think everything's unique but Mm -hmm. when it comes to america i think west virginia florida texas kentucky Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, very a different. couple of them that are just like... Yeah, Kentucky's very poor. So is West mm. Virginia. They're both mm. one of the poorest communities. But I remember as a child, we would have to come through the mountains. Mm. And um, I remember seeing a little girl get hit by a car. But uh, they were very dirty. Mm. White, the, the Appalachian whites were very... I, as a child, I think I was around maybe about 10 when I realized how poor... Caucasian people were in the mountains of West, how poor white people were in West Virginia. You know, I'd never seen that level of poverty around white people before because, you know, I lived in Detroit. Yeah, you're not, it's a different oh, it's, view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like I told people, you know, in truck driving, I mean, I only did it for about three and a half years, but it still left, it. the years I did it were so impressionable because I was so young, and it definitely opened my mind to a lot of things, like, you know, to meet a person where it's like their lifelong dream is to work at Walmart. It's like, are you serious? And it's like, nah, this is for real. Like my, this is like, this is success. You know but that goes saying? back to what you were talking about, about that leveling off different layers of who, mm-hmm. who can be educated, who is going to be educated yeah. and how that's going to be managed. And that was for decades, a group of people that they wanted to work those coal mines and keep them right there. So, so with that, mm-hmm. I guess they meet there. So I'm guessing. No, they know, met here in Detroit. Oh, they they met yeah, here my, at the party. Yes, at and it the just party. happened to already be some connections. They're there, there, mm-hmm. and then from there, the the the, the their connection, and, and then building the family. What what's happening? I, I know it's you. You got brothers, sisters. I have once. Well, let's see. My parents had. 
I have a, a brother that died uh, mm. after a couple of days being born. Mm. Um, yeah, my my mom, the doctors had initially some Caucasian doc, gynecologist, and this I was thinking about how we keep talking about not wanting uh, our people to thrive and in terms of having children, but they told my mom she'd never have children. Wow. So she went to see Dr. Crockett. George hmm. Crockett's wife. Hmm. I can't remember. Ellen, Evelyn, Evelyn, I think was her name. And she assisted my mom, and, and my mom got pregnant. And so, uh, yeah, see, they tell black women. They used to tell black women a lot of things. They still do. I was going to say, I think it, yeah, it, it's medical it, apart-time. Read that yes. book if you can. Oh, I, I, I couldn't. I started reading, and I stopped because it just, oh, I couldn't. Well, I'm talking to my audience. Oh, it. yes. It's, it's clearly <laughs> as, I mean, oh, yeah. it's more it's and more science when we, think yes. of, when we think of the way that uh, the medical industry is so tone-deaf to black women. Um, it's surprising. It is surprising. Well, I think when um, Venus was having her child, had her daughter, and she had those challenges, if it wasn't for her advocating for herself, she would have possibly died. And she bought, because of her uh, famous you know, position, she brought to the forefront so many issues around how black women. So it's not about money. Because she has all the money, and yeah. she had the best hospital. And yeah. the nurse was just like, oh, whatever, honey, you got pain. Just take some more. And she's like, no, I know something's wrong. And she knew that she was susceptible to blood clots, so she knew what was going on with her. But imagine if you didn't have that kind of strength to say, oh, heck no. I know what's wrong with me. No, you're going to treat me. No, you're going to do these things for me. And so she walked to the forefront when her daughter was born how it doesn't matter what the money is. It's just the fact I'm a black woman, period. Yeah, I, I, I mean, when we think about the, um, the, the infant mortality rate and yes. then also the, the death during pregnancy or, or, or soon after rate mm-hmm. with black women, mm-hmm. it's, you, would think, you would think that this isn't America. Right. The rates. Yes. Um, also... Yeah. In this in this whole concept of it, what we're going back to history because I'm talking to you. It's like, oh man, this is this is great. It's almost like you 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 sitting with your uh, with your sensei on stuff. But even the whole science of gynecology itself, mm-hmm. uh, like oh. many other medical sciences, but especially that one, mm-hmm. uh, so many sick European scientists mm-hmm. um, operated. And I still in my gut think it's probably still happening today. But now we we're, it's revealed that they were murdering black woman after black woman after black woman after black woman, just cutting them open mm-hmm. as if we're uh, uh, toys or something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is the science of gynecology. Like if people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The One of the best books I read that dealt with that was post-traumatic slave syndrome. She does a whole um, section on that. Yeah. about the trauma of, of medicine and what they did to to black people and experimentation. And, of course, you know, Dr. Francis Russ Crelson, Fra- Wilson. Frans- Cress Wilson deals mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, the whole issue of HIV and AIDS and other yeah. things. But, uh, yeah, her book, The ISIS Papers, those are two really good books to read about the impact of so-called science. <laughs> and, and that leads us right to drive to your lane. So <laughs> I know you as... 
I know you as a science teacher, but so much more, like I say, philosophy, many, really, for, for people that don't I have an understanding of science, and I think you broke it down to me back in, I don't know what that may be, third grade. Science is the question. <laughs> and then when you question, you discover. And then it's, it's steps in that process. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do the science projects, but yes, you're going to come up with, it's like every step in that, you know, the yes. purpose, the hypothesis, uh, and then you're going to get results, and then you come to a conclusion. But basically, you're questioning. So everything technically has a scientific uh, engineering design, like to everything. Everything. So within that, really to say you're a scientist is saying like you're just, you know, life is science itself. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Um, science is about discovery. You can't have math and not do science. Yeah. I mean, because well, how are you going to create and design something if you can't put it into physical reality? So you have to know the math to be able to construct whatever it is that's in your head. And you have to know art. Because how can you not use the geometry to design what it is you in your head have? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's all connected. And in our tradition, that's normal. You know, fractals is normal for African art. Symmetry, you know, is, is normal. Um, that's an important part of not only just the math and science, but also about our spirituality and expression of that through balance and harmony and understanding the universe in an artistic and scientific way yeah so what led you into science because I I met you there and and when did it like were you like the kid that just was like heavy into it like younger or like what well what was it that sparked it what were your parents uh dragging you to now that I know where you're from Parkman branch all the time shout out Parkman (laughs) yes (laughs) we lived there a lot yeah we were there all yeah I I was I was uh, I I was always a naturalist. I love nature. Um, my dad, I think sometimes I was the boy he never had. You know, we did all the fishing and uh, outdoor camping and all that kind of stuff. And I always had a, a very personal relationship with nature and trying to understand mm. nature. But I think my biggest desire in science came with trying to understand how God created the universe mm. and why. Hmm. And how. Um, So even as a young person, I was studying, um, oh, wow, different philosophers and trying that. I think that was really my journey. Like, how did this universe get to be like it is? Like, it's so perfect, but yet imperfect. And how did that happen? And so on that journey, that's how the science, because to understand what it is, you have to explain it through some form of understanding and so science would be the best because it's like it can't just be totally like spooky you know there has to be something that can explain why so with that i naturally ask how how soon did it take for you to get to a level in asking your parents questions before they started saying uh go to the library (laughs) (laughs) well i my parents my my father was so both of my parents worked. I don't remember having a really close relationship with them. They just gave us ways in which we could explore and discover on our own. We had uh, neighbors. My father was a community organizer. Uh, my relationship was with him was really going to organizational meetings. 
Ah, so you were the kid in the back. Yeah, I was the kid in the back and looking at how much my father was being disrespected. I remember mm-hmm. as a child sitting back and saying, these white folks not even listening to him. I was like, hmm. I remember that. I remember the disrespect and him trying to explain and push through. And and that just just brings me to the how much black men you know, trying to forge a way for their families, you know, how much they suffered and tolerated so much disrespect. Not to say that women didn't either, yeah. but I saw that uh, being around my fa- my father. Mm-hmm. So questioning, my, my father uh, grew up in a family where asking why was okay. So he never shoved me aside whenever I wanted to ask why. He would help me to investigate it. And then my mother, on the other hand, is like, girl, get on out of here and go do something else. So I knew not to bother her. Okay. But then there was also uh, an intuitive sense of allowing the universe to speak to me about what was so also. Um, I always just listened and my aunt used told me a story once of George Washington Carver that helped me understand that that was okay. He used to say he would talk to the flowers and the mm-hmm. plants to hear what they had to say to know. And um, I always had a close read. My, my best friend um, and I used to collect the animals in the neighborhood. So if a bird was hurt, we would find a way to put a cast on it some kind wow. of way and make our dads take the animals to the to the uh, humane society to the point That's where right. they told us don't Shout collect out, any more animals Shout out dad for don't collect like any more animals because we're not paying because back then you had to pay for shots you had to pay for everything I mean, we're not paying for any more animals to go back and we were I, we were so upset about it but my dad. initial attachment to science was through nature and I always wanted to be a veterinarian until I got to middle school or high school and realized that you had to um, stick your hand down the rectum of a cow. And it was like, mm, no, I don't think I want to do that I for feel I feel you. Being with the dogs and the cats, and that was cool, but mm, not not going that far. Okay. So so in that, it's so many things that, that even that goes into, but even the ask why mm-hmm. um, as <clears throat> it's unique because, like, in those parenting styles and sometimes – We'll look back and we'll reflect and say, like, oh, black people should have did this. Black people shouldn't have did that. I was like, some of these things that we look at now, like, in the in absolute could possibly cause harm. But some of this conditioning mm-hmm. that we think could cause harm was a safety mechanism. Mm-hmm. Because that kid asking why at one point in time possibly could have been a kid that, you know, if you asking why and the sheriff on the porch... You know, it could be some dangerous situations happening, you know. So what's your take on that? I want you to unpack, like, what do you think your mom's perspective of? And then also just a lot of black parents that, you know, sometimes may have been conditioned in the child's place concept. Right. And and part of that, I think, with my dad was different because he grew up as a fourth-generation educated family that specifically educated children. Mm -hmm. And so my grandmother was, uh, one story, this is probably where he got it from, was my grandmother and the way she raised them was my daughter, uh, she was about two, and my grandmother had gotten this real expensive powder from France. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And my daughter went in the bathroom and had, had put it all over the place. I mean, it was on the ceiling, on the floor. It was yeah, just what two-year-olds do. What yeah, two -year -olds right, do. right. <laughs> and so I was ready to spank her. And she was like, don't you spank her. And I was like, and she's like, it's not her fault. That's, what, that's exactly what she said. That's what two-year-olds do. And she schooled me on that. It's like, don't you touch her. She says, it's my fault. I should have put that away because I shouldn't have left it uh, low enough for her to have access to. We have to secure the home, make it child-friendly, right? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, you know, I was like, what? But my mom wasn't like that, of course. She, mm -hmm. she grew up in a more uh, punitive environment. She would have got that whooping that day. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I had one time... Um, my my mother had asked my sister to did she want to wash the dishes and she said no and then my mother got upset about it because she just you just you never say no to your parents right mm -hmm. so when my dad got home he was like well why did you ask her if you wanted her to do the dishes you'd tell her to do the dishes what did you think she was going to say of course i want to do the dishes like what was your expectation when you did that? So I remember him, my mother wanting him to spank us because we were, we were being disrespectful to our, my mom. But um, he said, put this extra blanket on the bed, and I got to pretend I'm spanking you. So your mom, so when I hit the covers, <laughs> tell mm. your mom to scream loud so your mom thinks I'm spanking you guys. <laughs> mm. So... He did that, and we and he said, "Don't laugh, don't." And we were trying not to laugh, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's my father didn't. His philosophy about raising children was like chess. You know, you have to be smarter than children to get them to do what you want them to do. So, if you can't intelligently get a child to do what's best for them, then maybe uh, you're not. You don't know as much as you think you do. Mm. You have to use other strategies. And, and, and with that, and I say that's that's a different approach. Mm -hmm. And then it's 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 empowering that you grew up with both approaches and you're interacting with so many kids because at the root of education, you're you're engaging with. You're engaging with the background and the understandings of each child. Yes. And you had like in your own household, you had like the duality of understanding like, OK, with dad, we're going to have some explanations, some da, 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 and then with mom, it's going to be brief, and it is what it is. And that, to me, is, is like a variance, mm -hmm. which empowers you when engaging with students because that is the mix. Right. And, and you learn circumstantial behaviors, like when you brought up the whole thing about how children have to may not ask why to the sheriff or the police officer. As, as black people, we've learned how to navigate circumstances based on the conditions in whom we're dealing with for our own safety and for our own life. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's the same thing in, in, any, in many relationships. You know, you know how to deal with this person because you know this about them, but you surely aren't going to say those things necessary to that person. So it's about really about building relationships and how to navigate human beings to, to continue to be happy and at peace. So in, in your life, your school journey, what was your school journey? <laughs> well, I uh, graduated from CAS. Okay. Um, 
I was not the best student. Actually, I didn't like school. After middle school, I it was boring to me at that point. I could see you're a person that ch- challenges and questions. Oh, I was that I person hated for you. School. So you probably had so many <laughs> questions for each teacher. Well, to yeah, actually, I, they <laughs> shut you. They shut you down then. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you you weren't allowed to. But they at that time, they didn't have your father's they're... style. They had your mother's style. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, went to Wayne State. Graduated from there. Uh, and while I was at Wayne State, I had my first child, and I was going to go into uh, psychopharmacology, and. Uh, I shifted gears because I realized that I didn't want strangers raising my child. Mm. I couldn't, I had friends who had children, you know, they were working for the county, they were working, and they had nine to five jobs, but that meant you had to be to school, the child had to be at school at eight, and you didn't get off to work till six o'clock. So Mm -hmm. it's like for 40, 50 hours a week, who was raising your child? And it it had to, so I was like, no, I can't do that. Hmm. So um, I went into education because I wanted to spend time with my daughter and know what and how she was being educated and how it was impacting her life. So when you announced you wanted to go into education, how did your family respond? Uh, well, my dad was the type that he was, he was do what makes you happy, you okay. know, um, but they, my, they wanted me to go so much further than teaching. <laughs> That's what that that was the overall. Yeah, yeah, they, okay. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We we've done that. Okay, it's time for you, this generation, to do something else. Um, but my sister and I were both rebellious. Our my sister and I were the first generation not to go to Spelman. Yeah, because I was thinking, I was thinking that, and then I also had a Wayne State question because. Back in education. And yeah, well, Wayne State, Wayne State was convenient. Um, and I didn't do as well in, in high school. Um, I could have gone to Spelman. Actually, my father wanted me to go. But it was to me, it was like I remember saying this to him. This is the ignorance of, our, our, of the youth. I said, this is the 70s. I'm free enough to go to any university I want to. I don't have to go to no black college. Mm-hmm. And he like, you just don't understand. <laughs> now, with that, and it's funny that you're there as I'm learning more and more and, um, mm-hmm. you know, when we think of, uh, we think of Ken Cockrell Jr., we think of Daryl Dawsey, we think mm-hmm. of now Baba Kinfense, we think of now with Baba Kinfense saying, like, uh, even Baba Sundiata, mm-hmm. it was some organizing through like the mid 70s because I used to think that like okay that was just like the late 80s it was organizing Mm -hmm. on Wayne State's campus to get more black students there and black studies and 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 having some deep like African studies like Afrocentristic studies at Wayne State and I'm giving this information because if you're national you may not even know Wayne State but it's a it's a university in the heart of the city of Detroit uh, and, and we know that Detroit is predominantly black and it's had a very like America, a very with black people. It's had a very uh, <laughs> a strained relationship. Let's use that term. Yes, that's, a, a that, that's being very polite. Yes, very polite with 
black people in the city. So uh, did you notice that on campus? Was that happening? I'm imagining this oh, timeline. It well, was happening in absolutely. and around that same time. My, my impression of Wayne State is like the Cinderella of U of M and Michigan State. They made everything so difficult because they were so busy trying to prove that they're just as great as U of M in Michigan. And through that, they just made everything so punitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side of that, because we were in the heart of the city of Detroit and we had such dynamic leaders like Cockrell and Chokwe Lumumba and people fighting one at the um, – the law school to enable more black people to get into law school. And we had those fronts during that time. I also became a member of the Kiswahili Club and the Black Studies Department. Wow. And uh, we did all kind every Black History Month, we bought, all, we bought Francis Crest there. We bought uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan there in 1980. Um, hmm. We had um, Dr. Ben... We did all kinds of things in that with that organization. So we had, oh, we actually partnered like with the African Liberation, uh, Kwame Ture. I met him mm. and party with Kwame Ture was the we best time ever. He is just so cool and just so like down to earth. Mm. May the universe be pleased with him. Just a beautiful, dynamic person who loved black people. And I love. I love these Detroit is different interviews for mm-hmm. these gems because it's like it corroborates more mm-hmm. stories. Because Baba Kinfense was like, yeah, you know, I was going down there playing drums with Baba Sundiata. And then there was some people organizing. I was like, I thought all that stuff happened like late 80s. Right. But this organizing and usually it's like this yeah. is usually the story. Like it, it's not like right now, you know, mm-hmm. the Alabama bus boycott happens. It's like, nah, it was probably right. organizing like, you know, going back to the 30s leading up mm-hmm. to something to hit yeah. at the moment and then now you 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 have mm-hmm. other buy-ins so you have students such as yourself that was like yeah i was down there we, i know you have a platform and a premise i didn't know that that was happening on that campus how how was the uh campus administration responding to that <laughs> strength of like you well know? we we had to find a way um we we fought for equitable dollars which we never got mm. um So what often happened, we partnered with black institutions like the the Pan-African Revolutionary Party. We partnered with, uh, at that time, you were allowed to partner with outside institutions. So they funded a lot of that, and we Mm. just sponsored it at the school. Mm. Now, when David Adamandi got there, things changed because he made a decision that he was not going to allow any of those revolutionary organizations and on I, campus. I like that you bring it up. So people mm-hmm. don't know the history of David Anamani, and he plays a hell of a role really in Michigan politics because David Anamani was the first sitting uh, emergency manager of the Detroit Public School Board. Mm-hmm. And he came from Wayne State. One of the first deals he did mm-hmm. was he basically said, hey, Detroit Public School will now rent out some Wayne State facilities. And he balanced the quote-unquote budget. This was after David Sneed and mm-hmm. interview with Kwame Kenyatta. But I never knew, like, David Anamani came in mm-hmm. basically shooting down a lot of black folks. So basically him stepping in led to the protest and the lock-in that eventually yes. came yes. about. Yes, yes. Yeah, oh, he I forget, was, Dr. He, Errol Henderson. I, I, yeah. I got to mention him, too. 
Oh yeah, Elrond. He was he was also a supporter, mm-hmm. and um, oh, what is his name? Mm-mm-mm. He belongs to the Beard Clan. Perry, Professor Perry, mm. was over the Black Studies Department. He was instrumental in helping us uh, get and have activities at the campus, and we did it by the black organizations would sponsor the outside institutions. Now, of course, you know, the white organizations do that all the time. Um, but when David Adamati came, he definitely put his the hammer fist down and wouldn't allow us to post flyers. You know, then there came this whole thing about where you put a flyer and where you can't put a flyer and who can be on campus. And it was, it, yeah, he changed the, di- the dynamic of everything. We had the apartheid protests. We, we did all that stuff. And yeah. that's what, that's the other mm-hmm. thing that, um, no Baba more protests. said basically yeah. he said that it was a lot of pro- apartheid mm-hmm. organizing mm-hmm. going on there on that campus as well. Yeah. I was part of that. Mm. Yeah, I remember having my daughter in a stroller and pushing her around. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and see, this is where, like, you know, yeah. you live here and then you learn more and more about the stu- the, the, the connection. Mm-hmm. How did how did the students respond to, you know, because sometimes we'll get a blow like a David Adamani stand, s- stepping in. How did the students respond and, and evolve? Because obviously the blow was taken and, and progressive. And it's so weird because it almost seems like, you know, uh, and this is just my my critique. Mm-hmm. It seems like through through almost trying to shut down the whole idea of black consciousness, it was more it, it was it was popping up and thriving stronger. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and some of this may deal with the cultural lens of of society itself. But when there were more open opportunities to even do things to involve black students, it's almost like it, it wasn't as engaged. Well, part of it, I think, was the time mm-hmm. one was moving toward. And there was a huge push for this idealism about why can't we all just get along? You know, apartheid's over, you know, integration, civil rights, you know, why not? And the other thing is many of us were graduating. Mm-hmm. And the it was very strategically done in how we did it. Uh, so there were certain organizations that just weren't allowed anymore. So you couldn't even exist. So after we kind of graduated, there was this consciousness around not allowing that organization to exist anymore. So after we left, there was no really key Swahili club. After mm. we left, there was not the, the all African revolutionary party couldn't have a, a or, a um, a, a space to be in the black studies department, you know, although, so it was very strategically done to mm. eradicate those radical people off campus. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that's that. See, and I like to get this information because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, the playbook still exists. So we need to be mindful of that. So now it's like you alleviate all these clubs and some of the people graduate out. And now it's like black a black student walks in Wayne State. It's like, what do I join? I guess I joined the the business. Right. Next business what what choices of, do I have? America right. Right. Club. And they and they reduce funding a lot to the black studies department. And you know, it it was it was a struggle. We struggled on all levels to just even get funding um, to do things. And and we had to raise money to get it. And we got outside. We just got outside resources to do it. But uh, 
So, yeah. so I like all of that game that you gave, but there you also meet a lot of the people you end up connecting with. So you're 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 home with, <laughs> you know, I know your I know your daughter Malika, mm-hmm. heck of a uh, brilliant man. Like when we think of like probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my <laughs> life. You know what I'm saying? Like Malika was like. Malika was like a genius at like 10. You know what I'm saying? She was figuring out better ways to play hide-go-seek. It's like, what's that? <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't know that story. <laughs> interesting. No, I mean, she was like efficient almost like on everything. It was like, yeah, it was like we wasn't playing like just like even little stuff like you like this story. Like when we play four square because mm-hmm. you like playing four square. So four square, if people know, is like you have four squares and you have a ball. You bounce it in the other side then the other side. Like when you were on teams with when you played on Malika's team, it was like you really had to like. She'd be like talking to you like Michael Jordan. It'd be like, "Hey, look, <laughs> when this happens, go here." It wasn't like just you know, I'm playing with Dr. It's like, hey, right, 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 right. Let's you just know, play the game. Fun. She it's was like, strategic nah, about yes, it. Yes, yes, always. That's always. why she became a lawyer. Very much so. <laughs> very, very much. But she so. didn't stay in law. But but, but that's but another conversation. Anything yeah. she never wanted to. So yes. So you're with Malika, um, and and she's growing. What connects you? What brings you over to the shoelace? Because that's where we meet. We meet at Aisha Shule. Yes. People know Aisha Shule, the African-centered school. Uh, shout out Mami Imani, Mami Moi, uh, Mama Makiba. The, the 12 original families that, yeah. that really founded the institution, yeah, at Alexander Cromwell Center. Mm-hmm. How I got to Aisha Shule, I was um, struggling at Wayne State trying to f- find daycare. The other part of that is Wayne State at the time refused to have full-time child care for liability reasons. And it's you people's problem that you need to have daycare. We're just not going to do it. I remember even having meetings with the ombudsman and, you know, and fighting to try and at least get just a space so we could have child care for women, you know, and families that needed it. Now, they had one place, but it was always full. I mean, you only could put like 30 children. And, I mean, you had a university that needed child care. Now it's not as bad as it was, but... Those are the things I remember struggling for. But there was one school that was in the Unitarian Church, and I met Alisa Jones, and she's a beautiful sister. And her son and my my daughter went to that school, and she found out about Aisha Shula. They were at the, uh, the Y at the time. And so um, when I graduated from Wayne State, I, we, we ended up going to Aisha Shule. Okay, so you started Aisha Shule as Shule parent. Yes, I was a parent up until 1992. Okay. Um, and then after I had my son, Jihad, um, again, starting that process, like, where am I going to go where I can be with my children and make sure they're raised properly? So I quit my teaching position and started working part-time at the Shule. Okay. Okay, and what was it like... What was the transition from Shule teacher, well, Shule parent to Shule teacher? Not very much. Um, hmm. <laughs> uh, part of it is because as a parent and from an African perspective, there really isn't a difference between being a teacher and a parent. You are a teacher and a parent. And part of that is even the the Walimu teachers were called mom and baba for a reason. I mean, they're an extension from your parents. So um, 
parenting meant that I was responsible for the school, not only financially for tuition, but also engaging the children, finding time to clean the shoelay, finding time every year to paint, uh, finding ways to raise money, being on the uh, parent board, um, all of those things. So it wasn't that much. And also, you know, I was over the science fairs a lot of the times or mm-hmm. engaging the children in the science fairs. So mm-hmm. I was still teaching, <laughs> but just not getting paid. I got you. <laughs> so, so in this, um, and, and you're in this space, as you say, connected to, and you're working with uh, great Detroit is different interview. Right now, you're working with Mama Shu, Mama Shamayin, and uh, everything she's doing over there. Oh, my Avalon God. Avalon Village, just... and you're adding layers to it. So you have this shoelace connection. Mm-hmm. And, and really, I'm sure a lot of some of these same faces, even from those Wayne State days, you're seeing some of these same activists and, and people around, and, and it's getting more familiar. Um, well, let me just have a story about Mama Shu. I've known okay. Mama Shu since she was 21. I worked with her at King High School. Oh, you knew her back then. Oh, okay. yeah. I knew her from King High School. We weren't, yeah, we didn't know each other as much as we do now since from the shoelay, but I worked with her back then. She was just as organized in self as she is now. Mm-hmm. I mean, she kept that office tight at mm-hmm. King High School. She didn't play. Uh, so, yeah, we've, we've known each other for quite a long time. Yeah. And I do always ask this because I remember my parents introduced us to Shule as um, it was a presentation they were doing. Okay. What was your first, what was Malika's onboarding when she first walked in Shule? What did she feel? What did you feel? What was the experience of connecting with Shule when you first went there? Well, the first, the first thing was the name of the school. It was school, the, the Affirmative School for Gifted Children. Mm-hmm. And just knowing that being the the title meant that the, the founders had to have a lot of testicular fortitude <laughs> to yeah. be able to name it yeah. that and it be an African-centered school. So that let me know right then that the founders of this institution believe that black children are gifted. And it's like, oh, wow. So then at first, like a lot of people, you thought, well, your child had to be gifted. And then you find out that all children are gifted. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was a, it was, well, they were upstairs that time at the Y, but I was so disenchanted with childcare at the time. It was just a, a wonderful experience. I mean, they needed things. I mean, it wasn't perfect. I mean, no place is perfect. But I, one thing I did like, there was no TV. Mm. <laughs> so many child cares have television. And they just sit the children in front of Sesame Street for an hour, hour and a half. And I was like, why would I pay you to sit in front of a television? But there was always engagement. The parents were there. The, the teachers were engaging. Um, and Mama Anna Woy and all of her art projects, she was an amazing woman. Um, she really engaged the children. And they had project-based learning and hands-on um, activities that I thought were important for children. So, so as that connected, and of course the culture, the what, culture was the, the, the a big part of it. What was Malika's response? Actually, I don't remember. She must have liked it. Well, mm-hmm. one of the things, yeah. So I'll I'll say this: uh, a couple years after we were at the shoe she was three, three, I think. And then by the time she was five, I started working at uh, Detroit Public Schools, and um, 
she had a terrible time at Chrysler Elementary. She, her, the work that she was doing at Aisha Shuler was so advanced when she got to uh, Chrysler Elementary, which I was told was going to be like, you know, I never seen so many mink coats and fur coats in my life of children <laughs> at a school, which right over there in Chrysler, uh, Lafayette yeah. Park. Um, yeah. More, And I was like, wow, okay, this is different. This is very, you know. So I'm thinking at least with the more economic advancement, but it was a very different vibe. But long story short, she had a really hard time in the sense that she knew all the work. And she's five years old, and I get a call from her first grade teacher saying that my daughter's been a behavior problem. And I was like, how is a six-year-old a behavior problem like? You can't manage a six-year-old. You're going back to your dad's. Yeah, it's like, you can't manage a six-year-old? can't all think of six-year-old. And so, right. And so I was like, so I went in. I, her name is Miss Rosario. Um, I went in and I listened to her perspective and I asked her. So what it was was she was giving her pre-kindergarten work and Malika was really doing second and third grade work at the shoe line. Mm-hmm. Like she could write a paragraph. I remember arguing with her, her science teacher, and he said, she couldn't have written this. This had to be written by you. And I just would argue with those people about her level of intelligence. They didn't mm-hmm. believe it. So that was the first time she was double promoted was I told her first grade teacher, she cannot stay in your classroom because my daughter is not going to hate school at six years old. Mm-hmm. So she can't stay here. So I mm-hmm. went to the principal and I had a talk with the principal, and she, of course, wanted to go back and forth with me. But eventually I, she said, well, she's going to have to be tested. And I said, okay, fine, give her whatever test you want. She's going to score beyond whatever she's, mm-hmm. her grade level. So she scored, like, second, third grade level in the first grade. She was two grades out, especially in ELA and language arts. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, so now what? Because she can't stay in that lady's class. Mm-hmm. But they had a mixed class all the time. But guess who was in that class most? White folks. Mm -hmm. They put the white kids in the mixed learning class so that Mm -hmm. six-year-olds could be with seven- and eight-year-olds so they could learn and grow. Mm. But they didn't put my daughter in that class. (laughs) But they did later after I battled with them. But it's like you never even offered that in the first place. Why couldn't you just offer it? So I just say that to say you have to just fight for your children on every level. So you dip the toe over at Chrysler and go right back to Shoe Lane. Because it's like, yeah, man, oh, yeah man. right. Uh, and I'm yeah. pretty sure, like, you know, whoever in your family that's like, oh, over there with them black, black, black folk. Well, my, my parents, my parents didn't you know. mind at all uh, well, that I was at Aisha Shule. The issue for me, it was financial. It was like mm-hmm. I had to pay tuition yeah, again. Cost, yeah. So it was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So my, my, my father and mother were very supportive, even financially, to help cool. me to do that. So um, that was a blessing. Um, but it was still a challenge, and I just made that sacrifice because it was, well, what happened was not only did she have those challenges at the school, but we had, like, two deaths in the family, and she was, like, the mm-hmm. first grandchild, and she was sad all the time, and I just remember picking her up from school, and I said, you can't stay here. There's not enough love, and that that year we went right back to the shoelace where she could be loved and nurtured and you know, you could run and play, and, you know, it wasn't about what clothes you wore or if your hair was pressed or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> all yeah. of that all of that extra was so, stuff. yeah, all that extra. Yeah, fur coat. Did your mm-hmm. parents drive a binge? You know, 
all that foolishness. Um, I remember her teacher mentioned to me, well, if you would just dress her like the rest of the children. I'm like, what? Mm. <laughs> no, I'm not buying Calvin Klein jeans for an eight-year-old. No, I'm not doing that. Mm. So, um, yeah, I said, no, we ha- you have to leave here because this is not working. That's it's not working. Yeah. That's deep. So, so in that, you, you're now your project is it, it's big. It, it's big. You're 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 bringing back this essence and and with it, as we know, the story of the Shule. I need to get my Mahasina here one day and get that story. <laughs> but you know, the the Shule had had you know things have a time and place mm-hmm. and space for it. But mm-hmm. and uh, after the Shule's closure, everybody's like, oh, it's messed up. And, mm-hmm. and Sorma's closing. It's like, oh, that's messed up. And we need to do this. We need to bring school back. Da, 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 da. You know, it was always a vision and, and really sharing the information and knowledge as you have been doing uh, at, at the village. Mm-hmm. What's the project you're working on now? Who are you looking to empower with the knowledge, the skills, <laughs> the information, learning? Well, the the. The desire to have a school goes back uh, about 20 years. Um, the name of the school is Every Child is a Genius um, because I fervently believe children are geniuses and it's the adults in their lives that prevent them from manifesting their divine gifts and talents. Um, started out a couple years ago after I, you know, just getting toward retirement, doing consulting work, I said, no, I have to make this happen. So I went to Prosperous Us, Prosper Us and Techtown business mm, plans, the business and they helped me put those my business plan together. I was going to, oh, you know, I won both pitch, pitch competitions, and it's like, yeah, 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 boom, COVID. So it was like, okay, well, I can't build the school. And they also discouraged me. My consultant was like, well, don't you want to start small? And I was like, no, I want to build a school. I want to build it from ground up. I want to have 150 children in the building. Well, why don't you just do charter? No, I don't want to do charter. And plus, pre-kindergarten, you you can't have a charter because it's not compulsory, compulsory education. What's compulsory? Compulsory means it's it's federally mandated that your children be in school. Okay. So it and in Michigan, it's six years old. So six to what's that? Sixteen. Six to yes, six to sixteen. Your children have to legally be in school. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the level of funding, the level of interest in pre kindergarten was is just financially just not there. So it's a struggle. So. Uh, COVID hit, I was doing some online work, things like that. And so I was talking to Shu. We always kept in touch. She was doing some stuff at the village. And she said, why don't you just come here and do some a pop-up? And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do school. <laughs> so she says, well, you could put the school over there across the street. But in the meantime, what are you going to do? And she's so gentle and so sweet, and she's just guiding me to this place, you know. So eventually she, I said, okay, okay. She's just to a class. And I said, okay, okay. So I, like, I did the super science classes for the children, 2 to 11. Mm-hmm. And um, they really enjoyed it, and that gave me a consortium of parents that were really interested in having uh, a school mm-hmm. at, at uh, Avalon Village. And so... I, Shule, uh, Charmaine offered me to do the school in the basement of the homework house. Mm. So we were working on that and 
just with her magic, she's able to, as gods do, manifest reality. She's a true magi. I've never seen anyone have an idea and it manifest. I can bear witness to a couple of them. We were sitting on the porch one day and we were talking about getting some cement because some of the the sidewalk was broken and we were talking about liability and where are we going to get the money to get to cement? I swear everything is holy. A couple of weeks later, this guy emails her and says, do you need cement? Mm. <laughs> and he donated like 100 yards of cement and it was like, boom. It's like, girl, please. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what she does. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And um, in balancing that, she's lost so much also. Um, so in that, she's she's offered this opportunity for me. So we're at the close to the final stages of actually having a school called Every Child is a Genius in the basement of the homework house for children two to five years old. We've had the lead inspection, the fire inspector's coming out tomorrow. So it's been a journey, but um, the goal is to offer children the opportunity to evolve well the the mission of the school is to the children have the right to a free thinking sovereign mind Mm -hmm. the ability to think and do for self the ability to create and manifest what it is they choose to manifest and so i've developed a curriculum called k4 knowing knowing to the fourth dimension which deals with the tenants are kinesiology, kinesthetics, kinesthetic learning, and knowledge. Break that down. <laughs> Break down all four Ks. because I'm, Okay, I'm gonna, K4. I'm going to get lost. Uh, kinetics is movement and uh, the opposite of potential energy, that there's creation and development in energy, mm-hmm. kinetic energy. Uh, and because our children do a lot of moving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially at that age. At that age, yes. You know, and we we spend so much time trying to get them to sit instead of evolving them to the point where they want to sit because they want to read, they want to do these things because they're exploring and investigating. Um, Kinesiology is the understanding of the human body in reference to nutrition and how the body moves. So connecting how they think and what they eat to how their body moves is what kinesiology is all about. Um, so this is like the anti-itis in the in the in the urban pop culture <laughs> brain. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that macaroni and cheese. And and knowledge, of course, is is an uh, information. You know how uh, wisdom with information is really mm-hmm. knowledge. And um, I think I could, oh kinesthetic learning is learning by doing. Um, Mm. My son taught me what it means to be a kinesthetic learner. Um, He he did everything. When he was little, I had to make sandpaper letters because he could write an A, he could do A, he could, but he was like, eh, who gives a care about an A? But until he actually touched it and and experienced it, did it really become important? Mm. It's like, so who cares? Yeah, and your and your son, uh, another good conversation too. Also, very, <laughs> yeah. It's like your 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 daughter is like one of the smartest people I know, and he's very smart too. But he's mm-hmm. like me. He's like a 
we ain't gonna get into what we care about. Nigga. Right. Some of the right. other stuff we just going. Yeah, no, no. And he's, it's a whole nother level of. It's a whole yeah, different, different kind of genius. Of yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And it's just as valid. And see what has happened in the Eurocentric environment is that mm. we have a tendency to put everything in a hierarchy. What's more important? Yeah. And so neither is more important. They're all important because we couldn't have people build things and think about things if people yeah. weren't kinesthetic and didn't figure yeah. out by learning by doing we couldn't have people just sitting around all the time pontificating about what's smart and what's good i mean like <laughs> what I, kind of world would it be right and i and i imagine it was my friend sterling shout out sterling toes it says like in in birth a woman kind of gives birth to like through their children it's like different parts of their personality like mm-hmm. i think me and dar balance out some of my mom's personality yeah. so i assume that jihad and 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 Malika, balance out your person. Like, like when I think of both, like if mm-hmm. I were in business with both, definitely pre-planning, everything running right, Malika, she's on it. It's mm-hmm. going to be when things like, hey, all our funding left, all our this left, everything else left. <laughs> like, come on, man. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's figure to, this out. Yeah, let's figure it out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. like, like different type of thinking and not mm-hmm. saying that she wouldn't figure it out or he couldn't be. Right. Like it's just certain people are, are better in mm-hmm. those spaces. Just like Mama Shoe, she's... Mm-hmm. She's like an impresario. Like, it's yeah. almost like not, you know, some people can function in levels where it's like, all right, they're they're seeing mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. come together and know how to put the pieces mm-hmm. in place with the right people. And then certain people are, are best in that planning stage mm-hmm. to implement in the structures. But that's why we all work together. And that's what I was going to add to. Like, do you see your personality in, in both of them in different ways? My children? Yep. Ooh, I think so. I mean, you 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 see. Yes, and well, I mean, I, I I do. I mean, they do inherit. I do believe they inherit certain aspects and characteristics of their of each parent. I do mm-hmm. believe that. Um, I do believe in epigenetics. There's things that do just travel down to the next to your your group. You know, good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's pos- potential for, you know, specific types of traits and tendencies. I, I do believe in that. But I also believe that that can be transformed. Uh, there's a lot of research about how nutrition and, and just your thinking can help transform uh, and exposure to different things can transform your genetics so that you don't necessarily hold on to those things anymore. But that's another side conversation. But back to that. We're going to drive a little. that. Yes. Yeah, I think they do. Um, I think Malika's inherited my my father's family's gene around um, uh, photographic memory. Hmm. Malika would be a third-generation fo- photographic memory child in my family Uh, Mm. my aunt Libby was like that she could read a book and I tested her I mean it's the most amazing thing she could read a book and she just closed her eyes and you say Aunt Libby what page on page blah 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 what was said she just closed her eyes the book would be right there she'd tell you exactly what was on the book then I had my uh, aunt cousin Josephine who was the founder of your heritage house she was like that she had like a photographic memory. She was a concert pianist and went to Juilliard at 16. And so, um, yeah, so Malika would probably be like the third generation in that line. But Jihad also inherited from my family 
all of the men, even his father's family, were athletes. So, I mean, he couldn't help but play football um, and other sports and martial arts and stuff. So he got that directly from the mm-hmm. the men, you know, lying to the family. And I was quasi-athletic. I was on a track team and played baseball and played football with the boys. I did that stuff, too. So, hmm. yeah, That's I could deep. say that, yeah. I've could. I. i I've never really thought about it until you asked me that. But, yeah, yeah, a little it's bit a, of both. It's a starting yeah, it theory. Is. Yes. <laughs> and then it's, it's interesting, too, because I think also that creates sometimes the back and forth, especially, like, uh, rest in peace to my mom, but, like, darn my mom sometimes, you know, mother's daughters, mm-hmm. like, little mm-hmm. nuanced stuff. And yeah. They yeah. go back yeah. and forth. And then I got to a point, like, you know, mothers and sons, definitely, like, teenage <laughs> yeah, yeah, for for any for every mother watching this right now, get ready for a get ready for an eventful, spirited, uh, parenting experience as your as your son becomes a teenager, maybe like fifteen it, or twenty five. It is, and and one of the things uh, I was we were very blessed is you do you you get what you ask for, and um, we were very blessed to have. Many brothers in his life, from um, being at the Shule to Insorma. Shout out to all the Babas at the Shule's and Insorma's. And even in the Nation of Islam, Jihad was at Muhammad University. And one of the things that they allowed them to be there was boys. I remember walking into the, the mosque, actually, the sanctuary area, and his teacher, shout out to Brother Jan, had them doing multiplication tables through a, uh, what do you call that, obstacle course. Mm. <laughs> hey, sometimes and I gotta... came in one day and he was sliding across the floor saying something, subtraction problems or something. And I was like, wow, yeah, this is what he needed. That's yeah. part of that learning yeah. as... I often say, and it and it shocks certain people. Uh, an interview I had with Marini, and I want to, I want to introduce both of you guys. I think okay. y'all rock well. But um, like I said, school was school was the first place where, like before school, I felt like my life I could do whatever. Like I was, mm-hmm. freedom was there. School was the first place. Sit down. Do what you wanted. Like, it was the first place I could get in trouble mm-hmm. and I was not doing something where I was beloved. Mm-hmm. And my key question always was, why am I doing this in the first place? <laughs> right. Like, why is math important? Uh, right. Yes, absolutely. Like, so, absolutely. So it is like, know a child's place. Shut up. You know, go right. say, go out the room. Stay, sit outside. And um, that's just not okay. Whereas, you know, that, that learning is mm-hmm. my dad when he would go over to uh, when my nephew Solomon's class. Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, let, we got to do a push-up contest first. Mm-hmm. Then we can get to some learning. Right. And it's very right. odd. Absolutely. But it's just our natural. Right. We want to get up. We want to get moving. We're, it's not, right. It's not. you know, as it, it, in some ways, we're not looking at like sitting down for six hours straight and I'm a five-year-old. That's not normal either. No, it's far from normal. It's far from normal, and it it's punitive, mm-hmm. and it's it's damaging actually to the spirit of the child. Mm. It really is because it. This is Mama Boniswa. <laughs> Watching my son traverse through that, it's it's breaking the warrior in them. Mm. Um, one of my challenges was allowing him to be physical in that space whether it was play fighting or 
falling on the floor or any of those things, um, sword fighting. Um, jihad always loved weapons training, and that was frowned upon because we're not supposed to like weapons and we're not supposed to want to fight. Mm -hmm. But when he was four, he said to me, Mom, I just like hitting people. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh. Now, when I go and say those things in certain circles, people will say, man, if you if he'd said that. I mean, in the right anyway, school. Yeah, it would be and okay. You're yeah. And you're not and the, empowered school, with the thinking. They're probably going to put him right. on drugs. Yes, they're probably going to label exactly him something. Was, that's exactly. He's going to get, uh, this is a term often used, an IEP that's yes. negative, an independent education plan, which a lot of black students, especially black boys, I mean, Jawaza Kenjufu, shout out that guy. Yes. Um, you know, right. ha have had for for so long just for saying something that's right. If you know how to mold and bend mm -hmm. and, and understand, it's like right. okay, and it's so, a place and space with that. Shout out to Mama Jindai and Baba Kalindi because they had their martial arts school. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, now you gonna get hit back. <laughs> So that changed everything. That's a fast, fast learning curve, right? Yes, like, wow, but okay, it, well. he moved on into martial arts and he be began began competing, um, mm -hmm. and he's very good at it. And um, in addition to, because he was so highly kinesthetic, he always is in two sports. He was either in martial arts and football, martial arts and soccer, martial arts and something. So he mm -hmm. stayed very busy three, four times. So did I, three, four times a week. But mm. he could have easily been labeled hyperactive or yeah. ADD. Or, but it really was just, just constantly thinking, 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 and doing. And he had to have somewhere to put that, that energy. And, 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 the, and that physical, the touch, the, the feel, mm -hmm. um, as I often sometimes, like, uh, when I interact with clients, and sometimes it's like, yeah, I can talk. I, I love as we, you know, conversations, mm -hmm, my thing. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I got to touch something. Sometimes mm -hmm. I got to see something. Sometimes I got to walk a room and then, you know, I may pick it up fast. I may be like, okay, I'll put a camera here, a light there, mm -hmm, this there. Mm -hmm. But I got to be gotta there. Feel yeah, it yeah, right. First, right. there's something coming up on Wednesday, but I'll feel it on Tuesday beforehand. Right. You know, and then get it there, lay it out. Now I'm thinking. So then when I'm there, I can activate fast. Sometimes I need that. And if I don't have that, I'm not going to be as confident. I'm not as confident. It's funny you said break the warrior mm -hmm. speak, spirit. Because I say like buck breaking. But breaking the warrior spirit, that is, that's what it feels like. If I'm not as confident, now I'm sitting mm -hmm. here and I'm like, ah, do I got everything? Did I forget something? Because you're, uh -huh. you're, you're told something's wrong with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was the message he was getting at two and three years old. There's something wrong with you. You want to move too much? You can't sit still? You can't? No, there's nothing wrong with him. There's something wrong with what you're teaching and how you're teaching. Yeah. How is something wrong with a two-year-old? I don't understand. You know, I just couldn't, like, comprehend it. And so it became a punishment thing. And so we had to move on and do other things. You know, I had to put him in an environment where being, you know, this masculine warrior kind of, Get down, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> was allowed, and well, it was allowed mm -hmm. at, at MUI, and they and they segregated the boys from the girls, of course. So the boys had their own space, and you know they could wrestle and you know do the alpha male stuff. Yeah, and and, and I, it was okay because it was monitored and supervised, and the men, you know, knew when it went too far. And but when you, you know, you can't. Well, yeah, that's another kind of But it's a, it's yeah. it's one of those things where I can observe like I remember, you know, 
you know, being six, seven, we used to jump off the porch. Yes. I remember one time, I mean, I got a whooping for it, but right. I jumped out my, my grandma's parking. I jumped out the car and rolled like Action Jackson because that's how Action Jackson do it. You know, we, and it's like, why are you doing I don't know. We're climbing fences. Yes. We're climbing trees. We're jumping yeah. off stuff. It's it's testing our physical abilities yes. of doing something. It's like, I see, you know, uh, you know. Because uh, like if you were at home in Ghana, that would be normal. You'd be climbing trees. You'd be hunting. You would be doing all kinds of things that would yeah. put your your yourself at risk because physical, you're constantly yeah. pushing how strong you're going to be, how confident you can be, mm-hmm. breaking fear because that's what part of it is, is that competition part. Yeah. It's like breaking fear. Like, why, why should I be afraid to jump off the top of the building? I'm going to land or roll, and I can manage that because as you become mm-hmm. as a man, you're going to have a whole lot more of the things that you're going to have to confront and battle. And I think we've crippled so many of our boys by not allowing them to to manage things that they have to confront and and, and destroy fear. And, and I, I do got to go there on one point and then we're going to close out. Okay. But, but in that same point, because you're right, like if I if I have my, my nephew and his friends and they're all hanging out, and they, you know, start slap boxing or jumping off of stuff. I understand and just walk in and be like, all right, look, this ain't the place of space. Right. But then we'll get to a park and it's like, hey, yeah. have at it. Jump off the jungle gym and all right. that stuff. All you want. This is the place of space for it, but maybe not, I don't know, the museum. Um, <laughs> right. But the, the, the drugs, I mean, the classic, I guess, Cat Williams joke where he's like, they said my son, something was wrong with him. He was running around and I gave him something. Now he's just sitting there, you know, dozed off or something. What are in, because I know you in science, what's in these ADHD drugs? Because it's so prescribed at such a high rate, especially to black boys. What's in it that's causing them and suppressing and changing their, it seems to be, it changes. Because I've witnessed it through, like, you know, seeing kids, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Where it seems like it changes their mood. Mm -hmm. It seems it changes, like, meaning like they move, they seem a little bit more depressed. And it makes them a little bit more lethargic. And it just, it's like, it just feels well, odd. There's, psycho, there's psychotropic drugs that reduce their dopamine. Um, and dopamine is really important in, in, in stimulating and pleasure. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a lot in it. And different children end up on different drugs. But... Basically, it represses their thinking and represses the stimulation of the the center that they say is too active. But, and I'm not saying some children do not need to be on medication. I'm not saying that. But I personally believe an overwhelming majority um, is rooted in in vitro trauma, improper nutrients out-of-the-womb trauma, um, possible uh, head injuries during childhood. Um, It could be a plethora of different reasons. And the fact that they just may hate school and some Karen is sitting up there (laughs) labeling the kid being, you know, hyperactive and disruptive. I've seen that. I had a a former student's son was because he was so interactive and he just loved holding and touching people and stuff and he just stayed in trouble 
because of that. And she came in school one day, and he was predominantly white institution, and they had placed her son at the back of the room by himself. Mm-hmm. And she's, I'm done. But the only black male child in the classroom and you put him at the back of the room instead of because that's how you can manage him. Like, what is he? You know, I mean, just that kind of stuff happens all the time. And so so then all the, well, then what do you think he's going to do? You think he's going to be behave better now or what do you think that he's going to do more things to get attention? Get attention. So yeah. then therefore he's going to be more of a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it, that happens to our children all the time in so many venues. And so it's easy to start that process. So you put him in the back. He gets more problems. Okay, well, well, Kwame's just being, you know, blah, 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 and they absorb his behavior. And then after a while, then in the other side of that, then they're not learning because that's not their learning style. They're kinesthetic or they're visual learners. But I'm sitting up here talking to you for two hours and expecting you to fill in a piece of paper. I'm not doing that. My brain, I done figured it out. Why do I have to write it down? I already know the answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why should I, like you said, why do I need to know math? Because mm-hmm. nobody taught you, they taught you computational math, but not applicable math. How was it applied to these things? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's so, it's so easy to start that track on a child being a problem till eventually they do become one because they get so far behind because they're not learning anyway. And, and and from and so it just, it just you just yeah. create an ADHD child is is mm. what I'm saying in some so, circumstances. And, and I was gonna just say like you know Northwestern shout out Coates and that's definitely <laughs> a neighborhood school. So, but I also think like when you get labeled bad long enough, absolutely you're gonna embrace the label. Yeah. yeah, and then everybody around you embraces it, and yeah. now, and then when you have your parents embrace it, then it's like mm-hmm. well. Well, maybe I am. And certain, yeah. st- and then certain students that even have like a a, a a reputation that precedes them with other teachers, administrators, mm-hmm. and then it's like, oh man, you know, Martinez is. And uh. it's also how we look at things. I think mm-hmm. one of the best examples is the X Men. I bought that was when Xavier, to me in my mind, has the perfect kind of school where every child with everything that that could be about them comes to the school, and it. Whatever that is, it's looked at as a gift and talent and a superpower and not something that's wrong with you. And so an ADHD child, I would say, you know what? You are so blessed to have a brain that functions at such a high rate of speed that you can't be still enough to do something as mundane as writing your name. So why don't we do this instead? Why don't you sing your name? Why don't you make a story about your name? Why don't you get on your iPad and do A, B, C, D? Then once they finally realize that there's nothing wrong with me, then maybe they'll be able to precipitate the fact that I could do anything. If I could do this, I could do that. I can sit down. But if I'm constantly telling you what you ain't and what you can't do and who you aren't and why you're not and you've got a problem and you're mentally mentally ill because now you have this issue and you're hearing that since you're three, Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the hearing that is bringing me back. To and how many before. times do mothers do that? Oh, you're too busy. Sit still. Don't do this. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Jawanza Kunjufu did a really great work when he said, "Mothers raise their daughters and love their sons. We don't raise our boys to mm-hmm. be men." Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Yeah, that's a whole nother conversation too. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jawaza Kinjufu. Um, He's heck, still kicking around yeah, too. He, he was here. Uh, he was here at the um, Black Men and Boys Symposium that uh, Grand oh, wow. Valley State yeah. University yeah, did yeah, this yeah, past yeah, yeah. Uh, May. It was, you know, and I, I was like, wow, that y'all y'all bring in the heavyweights. Because when I think of that, I think, you know, he's big in that. I mean, many others have the discipline, but, uh, and, and, and this is another Detroit connection. Like, uh, as Kwame Kiyata said, you know, we were some of the first people to bring them here with our African-centered uh, education. Stuff. Yeah, like, we, wow. did. You know? we did. We did. I'm like, did. wow, that's and, and I have one more story before I forget how I even evolved the curriculum. I was developing the curriculum. And uh, my grandfather graduated from Harvard, mm -hmm. and he uh, got his master's in physical education. And he wrote a book called Health Through Projects. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and it was in 1932. Mm -hmm. And I remember, we finally got copies of the book. My sister got copies. And I just sat on the shelf as I was developing my curriculum. And I was like, okay, grandpa's book, you know, big deal. A hundred years old, what does he know? <laughs> you know, I got my master's degree. I'm yes. a, you know, this is 2000. Yes. And, uh, so Spirit said, read the book. So I opened the book. I literally started crying because I realized he was doing project-based learning mm -hmm. and kinesthetic learning. Back then. Back then in 1932. Before it had the And Harvard and the good old boys in the Ivy Leagues already knew back then that project-based learning was the best way for children to learn. And then they flipped it and gave them auditory learning and lecture style. Mm -hmm. We didn't even, they just put it on the shelf. But I realized I was doing an extension of his research, wow. which is just, you know, one of those, like, you realize your point, your your purpose. You know what I mean? So that was a real awakening. But the other side of it was like, they knew all along. Hands-on learning was best. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely. So with that, and I definitely want to bring you back because yes, you almost every every story about your family, I almost <laughs> need to just do a whole podcast. Your family is like a, a, a an array of like black experiences through time. You like the Forrest Gump of, uh, <laughs> of black America. I like that. <laughs> Keep going and going and going. Like, <laughs> run, like, Forrest, run. Like yeah. You, gotta, uh, you know, my great, great, great grandfather yeah, was right. the. <laughs> yeah, because I saw you counting on your fingers like fifth generation. Like, yeah, wow. Like, yeah, wow. it's like 150 something mm -hmm. years. Yeah. So classic Detroit is different questions. Uh, first car, year making model, what year did you get it? Ooh. I was a poor, righteous teacher. I didn't. <laughs> the first car I got was a Maverick. I think it was like a 1986 or seven white who Maverick. Made, who makes the Maverick? Who made the Maverick? I think it was Chevy. Okay, okay. I think Chevy made the Maverick. Yeah. It was In a what Chevy. year? Was it the year? 87? No. A couple no, years after. My sister gave me her reject car. <laughs> okay, so basically your sister was like, Yeah, my sister gave me a reject car. There you go. You got yeah, that yeah, baby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop catching the bus with the baby. Stop yeah. catching the bus with the baby. <laughs> so she handed her her car down to me, and so, then I got a, a so, Nova. Okay. I like, yeah. I think Jihad did get the fast cars because I've all my my dream car has always been a Lamborghini. So, hmm. yeah. What? Uh, where was the first <laughs> place you went when you got the Maverick? Oh, probably to school or to work. I don't remember. Okay. Okay. It was one of those <laughs> Honest, like, yeah. practical yeah, it was, yeah, it had to be. It was like, no more Dexter bus. So, no, right. You know. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, say, peace to the people on the 16th. 
<laughs> caught the bus quite a bit. Uh, and, uh, another, That's when they ran. Hey, oh, another, my God. What's so funny is I had a, another most recent interview with a bus driver back then. He talks about how the bus mm-hmm. system was way better back in the 70s and the broken. It's interesting. Oh, it's yeah. Really different. yeah. Um, so the other, mm-hmm. um, you are the DJ. It's the end of the fireworks. You get to play three songs. Woodward Jefferson, what songs you playing? Ooh. <laughs> That's a good question. Man, it would probably be an Earth, Wind, and Fire song because I love... Which um, song? Oh, gosh. I, I mean, as a scientist, I don't know <laughs> the one I think you would play, but I don't know. Oh, there's so many. I'm trying to think. And then there's oh I I can't think of the title. I'm gonna give you Shining Star because that's the one I think. That I think that is, is one, Shining Star. But there's another one. That's a, these are questions I hadn't even thought about thinking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's Man, another I really song like, uh, in the fireworks. What's the song with Ramsey Lewis and them? Uh, Sun Goddess. That's another. That one was a good one. There is one by. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I probably, I, I eventually in time became a Miles Davis fan of the mm. old Miles Davis, not okay. that more. Not the, not, not fusion jazz Miles. You mean original Miles. Oh, my original Miles. So okay. it'd probably be something like that. So, so um, pre-Betty Davis. Yes. <laughs> yeah, pre-Betty, yes. Betty absolutely. is the reason why fusion jazz exists and then people don't know. And then uh, Celia Cruz, I really like her music, so it'd probably be something uh, from Celia. She's she's an amazing artist. Okay. All right, and last question. You can rename what word after one D-Trader. Who would it be? Why? Name Woodward after one. Ooh, it would have to be Coleman Young. Mm-hmm. The mayor. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I was so honored to be in his presence and meet him. It was a joy. I had much respect for him. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful man. He really loved our people. He had a really good intention. I remember as a child, he was begging black people to not move to Southfield. He said, why are you moving to Southfield? Just buy the land right here. And now look. It's like you can't even buy property downtown. (laughs) No. Mm -mm. And it's, it's getting like, like that in many it. neighborhoods. Yes. He said, just buy it. The just... land bank man was on my street today talking wow. about what they're going to tear down. He was like, hey, somebody here? I'm like, nah, that's not, that's not unoccupied. Yeah, so, I know. Mm. I know. Yeah. No, I, I live in the, the villages now, so I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's getting <laughs> I'm that. in the villages. I was like, what's the villages? I didn't even know what that was. Damn. That's how they promote it outside of the city mm-hmm. is the villages. It's mm. like, oh, wow. Okay. Ain't that something. <laughs> well, thank you so thank much. Thank you so I'm much. I enjoyed myself. <laughs> I, I, I wish you the best. And then I thank look forward you. to seeing some little homies running around. Yeah. Getting in the stuff. Singing the praise the red, the black, and the green. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Pop out to Tashinda. Yes. Pop to Tashinda. Yes, so, sir. Yeah. All right. All thank right. you. Peace. Peace. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.